0: it's time to take the quiz five questions five minutes a day five days a week
1: take the quiz
2: every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did play share and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox
3: from the fox news radio studios in midtown manhattan it's the fastest growing radio talk show brian kilmeade
4: Hi, well, Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We're going to talk about the, uh, our, our great soldiers, men and women that have fought for us in the past and fighting for us now uh, with Ryan Mannion, president of the Travis Mannion Foundation, and has dedicated his life to supporting our nation's military veterans and families of fallen heroes uh, two days from Veterans Day. And Byron, New York, at the bottom of the hour, so, because so much is changing on the political field, and we are uh, getting information now that it looks like Naomi Biden, the granddaughter of President Biden, was nearly carjacked today. Freak, uh, it turns out the Secret Service had to draw guns and fired shots, but missed. The guys got away. Uh, we'll, fire, we'll tell you what's going on in Washington. I mean, they're shooting uh, Washington commander running backs. They're shooting uh, President's granddaughters. When are they going to get the message that you have to prosecute crime? Let's get to the big three.
3: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three.
5: On Saturday, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson presented a funding plan, and he essentially kind of came up with a two-step plan, which is the only difference from how Kevin McCarthy did it. His suggestion is for Pelosi-level spending. Yeah,
4: unbelievable. Olivia Beavers weighs in from Politico. Talking about CR time. Yes, it's true. With five days to shut down, Speaker Johnson is talking continuing resolution as a solution. The last speaker that did that lost his job. We look at the stakes, the Senate and more. Number two.
6: When I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate. I am suspending my campaign. I I think the voters have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim.
4: Not never, not saying not never, just not now. 2024, a major name drops out of the GOP race, and it's Tim Scott. And President Biden moves to re-election mode. Skeptic surge, by the way, on the left. We bring you inside the sprint to the official 24 campaign.
7: Number one, I don't think it will be enough to deter Iran. I think Iran sees great value in stretching U.S. forces. Look, we've deployed two carrier groups, Patriot missiles and aircraft to the region. And that's exactly what Iran wants, as well as their allies, uh, Russia and China.
4: Uh, i tell you what, I think the Russia and China want it. I'm not sure Iran wants all a firepower there because we might just use it. Maybe not this president, but another one uh, or Israel at war, America at risk after 46 attacks the first series of return fire by U.S. forces on Iranian militia, plus the future of Gaza and the protest pushback. All right. Uh, First, let's talk about what's happening with uh, Israel at war. The IDF says they supplied 300 liters of fuel to that hospital. Everyone said, oh, what about the hospital? What about the hospital? Hamas didn't let them deliver the fuel to the hospital. Underneath that hospital, and this is what Israel says, is this huge network of tunnels, pretty much the headquarters, because they know that most civilized nations wouldn't bomb a hospital. But they would blow up tunnels, and that's exactly what they're looking to do. Uh, they say, Israelis, Israel says, just give us the hospital. We'll take care of everybody inside of it. So uh, the troops risked their lives to handle over 300 liters of fuel to the Shifa hospital for urgent medical purposes, and guess what? They wouldn't, be, uh, wouldn't allow allowed to take it. And there's a big push now for a ceasefire. Look, I don't know how many civilians were killed. I don't want one civilian killed. But it's not the intention. Hamas's intention is to kill them all. What people should understand is this isn't, well, if you only gave Palestinian Palestine a homeland, they wouldn't have this problem. Nothing to do with that. And the more we dig into this, the more you have to realize this is not to do with the Palestinian Israelis. This is jihadists looking to destroy every Jew on the planet every Christian, and they're coming for us next. But Ma- Emmanuel Macron didn't seem to get the message. Cut one.
8: I think this is the only solution we have. This is fire. Because it's impossible to explain we want to fight against terrorism by killing innocent people. De facto, today, civilians are bombed. De facto. These babies, these ladies, these old people are bombed and killed. There is no reason for that and no legitimacy. So we do urge Israel to stop.
4: Right. Stop bombing. Just let Hamas get out. They'll they just like civilians anyway. It'll be pretty easy. That's pretty good because there's nobody on their border trying to bomb them. And in World War II when they were trying to get their country back from Nazi Germany, remember that? Uh, do you think there were civilians killed then? Absolutely. But with the stakes high enough to understand that civilization was at stake? Yes. And to make it easier on my illustration and verify and validate its, uh, the analysis, an Arabic copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf is found on one of the bodies of Hamas terrorists and was also found, another one, in a child's bedroom in Gaza. They also kidnapped a three-year-old, but first killed their parents. That three-year-old, an American. So the hostages, 244, the way they chopped up people, the way they uh, gloried, just had, uh, they, they actually felt glory in killing people. That is why Israel realizes Hamas cannot survive. Now, for I don't know what happens next in Gaza, and neither does Benjamin Netanyahu. He does not know what happens. And you know what? His career is probably over after the October 7th attack that happened on his watch, but I know this. They can't live with any semblance of Hamas next door. None. Mike Lawler, New York congressman, first term on this week with George Stephanopoulos. Of course, never has George Stephanopoulos on it. Cut eight.
7: The bottom line here is, yes, we need to provide humanitarian uh, relief and we want to avoid civilian casualties. But this 11,000 civilian number uh, that keeps getting repeated by the press is factually wrong. Uh, Within that number, thousands of Hamas terrorists have been killed. And obviously Hamas is using these civilians as human shields. And so the, the oppressor here, the people that are responsible for the deaths in Gaza, is Hamas.
4: Can people understand that? Can Macron understand that? Can we understand that those protesters in the street for Hamas, they are supporting this. And if they don't, then they should get out of the street. And stop embarrassing themselves. So this is something you need support. It's going to be brutal, but nothing is more brutal than October 7th. It's as if 60,000 Americans were killed within a matter of hours. That's the analogy. Douglas Murray just got back, and he saw the demonstrations against, and he sees it everywhere in his former country, Britain, and his current country, America. And he thinks we're at a turning point. Cut ten.
8: They're mainly made up of two groups of people. The majority are Muslims uh, and uh, people who, uh, the Muslim faith who always feel incredibly enraged whenever Israel is involved in the conflict and never come out on the streets when their fellow Muslims are being massacred in Yemen, Syria or anywhere else. But there's also a sort of second and smaller group in these crowds in Britain, in Berlin, as in America, which is a group of sort of far leftists who basically use this strange imposition of American... Um, recent interpretation of American history and put it on to the Middle East, which is why you hear people talking about colonialism and um, first peoples and much more. It's it's, it's a real demonstration of incredible ignorance.
4: Yes. Douglas Murray is going to be on a little bit later, so we'll talk about that. The other big news that I was shocked at, Tim Scott was only in single digits. Everyone liked him, doing better at every debate, got a lot of time this debate, but has not been resonating. His personal bio story is the story. But if you dig deeper on Tim Scott, he comes out even better. Worked well on police reform, worked well on tax reform, was extremely um, uh, was extremely productive in his enterprise zones with President Trump. And he also was a great ally for President Trump when it comes to race relations. And he said, you know, sometimes he could be the president could be a little ham handed, but he was far from ever racist. Good friend. I think that he is definitely eligible and would be a good choice as a second, as a running mate, if Trump gets the nomination. But uh, for the most part, he's done. Why? He had money, but he didn't have polling. And if you can't get on that stage for the debate, that's why I think that uh, Doug Burgum's probably gone. Because even though he's got the money and he's got a great job and he's got people that know him, love working with him, I just don't see it. So Trey, I just texted Trey Gowdy. He thought that Tim Scott was eventually going to drop out because he wasn't resonating. He doesn't want to spin his wheels, but was shocked when he heard this last night on his show. Cut 25.
6: One of the things I would recommend to every single American, I know it's not possible, by the way. If you ever want to love your country more, run for president. Traveling this country, meeting people has been one of the most fantastic experiences of my entire life. I love America more today than I did on May 22nd. But when I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate. I am suspending (coughs) my campaign. I I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me not now, Tim. I don't think they're saying, Trey, no, but I do think they're saying not now. And so I'm going to respect the voters and I'm going to hold on and keep working really hard and... uh, Look forward to another opportunity.
4: Well, he's going to be set till 2028. He's got a good Senate job and gets to keep a lot of that money uh, for his campaign, maybe for a future campaign. Byron York, chief political correspondent, Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, will be joining me at 34 after to talk about that and Washington, D.C. going to hell as now you, the president's granddaughter, uh, just thwarted uh, thanks to the Secret Service, uh, would be carjacking. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Next, Ryan Mannion.
3: Educating From his mouth to your ears, ears. it's Brian Kilmeade.
4: Brian Mannion is the president of the Travis Mannion Foundation and has dedicated her life to supporting our nation's military veterans and families of the fallen heroes. She does it in honor of uh, her brother, uh, First Lieutenant Travis Mannion, uh, U.S. Marines, who made the ultimate sacrifice in Alambra province of Iraq while drawing fire from his wounded comrades. That was back in April 29th, 2007, and there's still firing going on there today. Uh, Ryan Mannion, welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Brian.
4: So Ryan, first off, what does Veterans Day mean to you this weekend?
1: You know, I come from a a proud heritage of veterans. My dad, my grandfather was a um, a part of the Army Air Corps. He was a navigator on B-17s. My dad is a retired Marine Corps Colonel. Of course, my brother uh, was a first lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And so we have a, a proud heritage of military service in my family. And I think, you know, Veterans Day and Veterans Day weekend is a time to remember that and, and honor those sacrifices and that service. And, you know, I just have a deep appreciation for anyone who steps forward mm. to serve and protect our country. Why'd your brother join? I mean, you know, I'd like to say that that uh, we we look at it now, you know, of course he was in Bedded with the Marine Corps tradition. We grew up in a military family, born on military bases. So I think, you know, just being around uh, these proud Marines and seeing their service, it, of course, mm. uh, it was what eventually led him to joining the Marine Corps.
4: Ryan, can you bring me back that day in 2007? Tell our audience uh, what your brother did.
1: Sure. On uh, April 29, 2007, my brother was out on patrol with his team of Marines. Uh, they were ambushed, and um, two of my brother's teammates were were hit. My brother exposed himself to enemy fire twice to pull his two wounded teammates to safety, and um, he exposed himself for a third time to push back the enemy, and it was at that time that uh, he was shot and killed. He was the only member of his patrol that gave his life that day and received a Silver Star for his actions and you know, the last last sentence of his citation reads that his deliberate actions ultimately saved the lives of every member of his patrol. And so we have a deep sense of pride for what he did and what he represents uh, to this greater military community.
4: So last year you authored a book, The Knock at the Door, Three Gold Star Families Bonded by Grief and Purpose. Uh, so you launched that book. What was the feedback you got?
1: The feedback has been tremendous. You know, I wrote that book with uh, Heather Kelly, who lost her her husband, uh, Robert Kelly, uh, General Kelly's uh, daughter-in-law. And, you know, we traveled around the country just making sure that people understand what a Gold Star family is, first and foremost, because the fact of the matter is, is most people don't know. And um, bringing education to that, but also making sure that people understand that, you know, we got a literal knock at the door where Marines came to our door to to share with us the worst news of our life. But the fact of the matter is, is that every single one of us is going to get a knock on the door. Uh, Maybe it's not going to be in the same way we got it, but there's going to be a moment that changes the course and the direction of your life. And, you know, we wanted to share our story to share with others how you can be prepared for when Uh those moments hit.
4: Ryan Mannion talking about uh, the men and women who serve uh, her her brother in particular. You've also launched a podcast when that pod, when you open up and you talk to different people, how damaging was it the way we left Afghanistan for the men who sacrificed so much there? I know your brother died uh, in Iraq, but still it's uh, so many did both.
1: Uh, Yeah. You know, the withdrawal in Afghanistan was a colossal disaster. There's no other way to put it. I have had the unique opportunity of, I had friends over there, Afghans, who now live in my small town in Pennsylvania, a couple miles away, and to watch the devastation that was brought on to the Afghan people for this commitment. And and what it gets back to for me, honestly, is we made a commitment to our Afghan allies. And we did not honor that commitment. Well, certainly our government did not honor that commitment. I think there were a lot of well-meaning groups and individuals and our service members that wanted to honor that commitment, but it wasn't done. And it's a stain on the 20 years that we were there uh, trying to help the Afghans. And, and what is happening there right now, you know, it's it's gone and passed, but what is happening with the Afghan people now is— is terrible to see. They are living in refuge. They can't work. Their rights have been stripped away and they're living in fear. And and then we have 80,000 or 60 or 80,000 Afghan refugees over here that are still fighting to just get the, the privileges um, to obtain citizenship here. And it's a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, I could go on and on, but it it, it was a sad, Sad time right. for our nation's history. I just
4: worry, I worry about the people that sacrificed uh, and have some wounds, visible or, or, or not visible, and that feel as though it wasn't worth it. And for 20 years, we showed everybody, you guys showed everyone, or they showed everybody uh, that we're not here to take their land, we're here to help them stand up an army and live on their own. And for 20 years, women had actual rights. Uh, and to to leave that behind is insane. I just hope people listening right now do not think their sacrifice uh was worthless because it it means a lot. You can't control what what idiotic decisions politicians to make. Your final thought on that, Ryan?
1: Yeah, I think at the end of the day, our men and women who raise their right hand, they're not sitting around the table making those decisions, but they're the ones that are ready to carry out every mission that's given to, given to them. And so, you know, our government has a an obligation to make those decisions wisely and to do the right thing. And, you know, that wasn't done the right way, and it's a shame. But, um, again, none of our service members over this last 20 years served in vain. Their service meant something, and we should all be so very proud of them. Right,
4: and they're being called to action again. We lost five over the weekend just in a training mission, nothing routine about it, in-flight uh, refueling on a black Hawk, We lost lost five Uh, special operators. Uh, Ryan, thanks so much. I don't have to tell you. Where do we go if we want to help out?
1: You can head over to travismanion.org and join our mission.
4: Thanks. Uh, That's M-A-N-I-O-N. Ryan Mannion, thank you so much. When we come back, Byron York.
3: A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade show. It's
6: just a lot of concern about the age issue, and uh, and that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing uh, to do? Time is fleeting here, and this is probably the last moment uh, for him to do that check. And it's 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 probably good if he does.
4: So. David Oxelrod, for the third time in four days, politely saying that Joe Biden shouldn't run. It's noteworthy. Tim Ryan, also, former congressman, tried to be governor, didn't work, said, love Joe Biden, should not run. Van Jones doesn't look like he doesn't believe that President Biden should run. But President Biden does think he should run. Byron York knows it, chief political correspondent, Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. Uh, Byron, I want to get to Tim Scott's decision, but I wanted you to just comment on... The re-election mode now. It's uh, Joe Biden's camp says the White House says he's in re-election mode now. What's your reaction? Because the voices on the left are pretty pretty stark.
9: Well, it's it's obvious that he's in re-election mode. Look, it's very—I've been saying this a long time. It's extremely hard to dislodge a president of your own party out of his office if he wants to seek re-election. Really, really hard to do that, and Biden has determined to do that. You do have some truth sayers out there who say, look, this is a problem. The president is too old, by the way. He's going to be uh, 81 a week from today. Um, so uh, you, I don't, I'm not sure if you've seen it yet. There's kind of a, a devastating piece in Politico about uh, Biden today. Almost all of the piece is talking to Democrats about what Biden needs to do. He needs to do this. He needs to do that. He needs to hire this person or that person. But in the in the beginning of the piece, uh, it says 2024 will be an extraordinary election. It demands extraordinary measures. That's in part for reasons Biden refuses to accept. His capacity to do the job, the oldest president in history, when he first took the oath, Biden will not be able to govern and campaign in the manner of previous incumbents. He simply does not have the capacity to do it, and his staff doesn't trust him to even try. Wow, that wow. is uh, that is a that's the fact. That is the fact we were facing um, in this uh, campaign. And the rest of the article, I should I want to make clear, is a lot of Democrats offering their advice about how to reelect this man they know is not up to the job.
4: Which is crazy. Did you watch him on the wreath ceremony over the weekend on the Tomb of the yeah. Unknown Soldier? Yeah. I mean, he walked well, we, out. He sits there. He comes back. He looks at the soldier. the... the, the uh, the soldier points has to point them back to the line.
9: We look, we see this every day. Um, any American who has an aging relative, and that's probably most Americans, uh, has seen you know the aging relative just slow down in front of their very eyes. Doesn't mean they have dementia. Doesn't mean they have Alzheimer's. They're just slowing down, and they're no no longer able to operate at the level they did before. That's clearly what's going on with the present. You see it every day, and it's the one thing in life that you can predict will not change. He's not getting any younger.
4: So um... – We'll we'll see what happens because, like you said, if he if he wants to run, he's going to run. He does not have to debate, but he does have a lot of different parties getting in. Cornell West not on the Green Party. Jill Stein is. Cornell wants to keep running. RFK is out there again, twenty two percent among independents. And then you have the no labels looking for somebody like uh, Joe Manchin, Governor Huntsman, or well, or Larry Hogan.
9: I have to say um, that we're talking about Biden right now, but we know that a lot of Americans uh, are absolutely dead set on Donald Trump never being president again and what's really extraordinary about this campaign is when you ask Americans you know what are your feelings about the upcoming 2024 campaign and Joe Biden Donald Trump rematch you know are you excited are you uh, eager to get to work are you hopeful and the the answer that wins is dread dread. They don't want this choice. What that means is there has never been a better time for a third-party candidacy. Now, they don't work. I mean, in in living memory, they they just don't work. Um, But given the public mood, there has never been a better time. And I think you've seen numbers from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, that are, are very impressive. Not that he's going to win, but that he's certainly be a big factor in the race.
4: Absolutely. Uh, we'll see. I mean, I'll tell you what, the, Trump is beating him on almost every uh, battleground state and almost yes. on every issue. So the yes. question is, would abortion overwhelm it and would people's dread for Donald Trump change things? And yeah. here's the question, Byron, and, and, you know, Donald Trump's got flaws. But to overstate them on a daily basis is maddening. And I'm saying we know it's going to, be the way, it's going to change the world. If you elect Donald Trump, uh, the world will change. You're electing Hitler. And sure enough, I look at I coming up here. Joe Scarborough and John Meacham directly equate Trump's vermin speech to Nazism. Yeah, Already. Nazism already. Well, that's been going
9: on for quite a while. And I, and I have to say um, the two issues that matter the most right now. Factors are Biden's age and the cost of living, uh, the result of the, infl- of the inflation that came when Biden became president. Um, those are the two biggest animating issues there, and the only way Democrats cannot come out and say, "Oh, the economy is really good." You know, all that all that um, that uh, anger and, and, and insecurity you felt going to the grocery store—you know—you didn't really feel that the economy is doing great. They cannot make that argument. All they can do is talk about the threat of MAGA, and I think you're going to see just a full-blown fear campaign. Nothing. We're not seeing any of it right right now so far. If Trump is the nominee, which is not guaranteed, but if he is, uh, I think you're going to see a, a, a fear-mongering campaign about Trump, and not just about Trump, because if Trump is the, not the nominee, they're going to call whatever, whichever Republican is the nominee, they're going to call them MAGA and a Trump light and all of that stuff. So I think that's the only way, only way Democrats can win the election.
4: Well, you know, it's interesting because I know you're right, because look at the way they went after DeSantis initially. Uh, yeah. and, and, they would be, and remember, I will never forget the way they vilified Mitt Romney. And yet Harry Reid come out and go, yeah, I made it up about, yeah, everybody knows Mitt Romney doesn't pay any taxes. What? Yeah. Oh, I made that up. Did he win? Okay. That that I mean, that was mild compared to what else they did. They made him an unelectable person who uh, doesn't like minorities, likes to uh, buy companies and fire people. And, okay, you might want to run on something positive, but that's not what they're going to do. So hopefully Trump will see if he, people are going to overreact to that or if they become almost – Fatigued. How many times can you call someone a Nazi before you stop listening to them? <laughs>
9: That's a good question. Maybe yeah, we need to do an experiment. It's going to be called the 2024 campaign.
4: So I want you to do what Tim Scott said last night. Cut 25.
6: One of the things I would recommend to every single American, I know it's not possible, by the way. If you ever want to love your country more, run for president. Traveling this country, meeting people, has been one of the most fantastic experiences of my entire life. I love America more today than I did on May 22nd. But when I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate.
4: So he's out. Now, look, it's not like the front-runner left, but he's a popular guy that had a lot of money behind him and's not waiting for another debate. Your reaction?
9: I think this falls into the category of shock, but not surprised. Yeah, a um, little uh, jarring that that he did it last night. I mean, that he did it when he did it, because he does have the money to to hang around for a good bit longer. But uh, not surprising because he just wasn't going anywhere in the, um, in, the, the in the in the race. Um, Tim Scott is extremely well liked. By everybody, you know. If you go to uh, South Carolina and talk to a lot of Republicans, they say, "Oh, you know, I really like Nikki Haley, but I love Tim Scott." I mean, you know, they just—he's—he's he's just somebody people like. Uh, that was the holding in Iowa, by the way. As we speak, Tim Scott is in fourth place uh, in Iowa, which is, you know, not
4: single digits,
9: totally out of it.
4: Yeah.
9: Um, but uh, but he clearly just wasn't going anywhere, and you saw it. You saw it beginning in Milwaukee August 23rd the first Fox News debate he just disappeared he wasn't really there he was he was viewed as uh, obviously this is a, a crazy race there's only there's a top tier and just one person in it but he was viewed as a part of that second tier and uh, he just didn't show up and things didn't really get better in the second debate and then in the third debate we just had in Miami he kind of disappeared again um, he had he had a way of, of, of talking of taking up some time, but not really telling you anything. So this is a candidacy in which he was, uh, the candidate was personally popular, personally liked. Right. Um, but nobody ever thought, you know, he really should be president.
4: But Byron, you write, in your, uh, you write that really the debates have reached a dead end because Donald Trump's not there. And yep. he's up by so much in the polls. In, in what respect do you fully feel it's a dead end?
9: Well, it's a dead end because the stakes are lower. Because when the when the prohibitive front runner skips all the debates, uh the debates are just arguments between a bunch of people over second place. And so the the idea of a of, of the front runner, you know, on a high wire act, you know, being attacked from all sides, that's that's not happening because Trump is not Trump is not on stage. Um, and when I say people are are fighting it out for second place i don 't mean they 're fighting it out because they want to be trump 's vice presidential nominee i don 't think he 'd pick any of them. Um, th- what they want to do is they want to be ready in case Trump fails in case something happens with all the legal cases against him, something happens with something else, but for some reason trump doesn 't become the nominee somebody 's going to be the nominee, and they want to be in position for that so what you 're really seeing is This race for backup, you know, I I want to be the backup. No, I want to be the backup. Um, And it's just not as compelling as an actual presidential race. So that's why I said they've kind of reached a dead end because they have until maybe that time comes in which Donald Trump actually does take part in a debate.
4: The other thing is simmering beneath the surface is. The Republicans are struggling from the midterms to the off year. They have not had success, and it seems to be all about abortion. Vivek blames Rhonda McDaniel. Cut 27.
7: I think that it's shameful that, you know, the untruths coming from Rhonda McDaniel, the leader of the RNC, who has deflected accountability for her personal failures. She took over in 2017, in 2018, 2020, 2022. And 2023, we have disastrous results from the party, and yet she's looking to blame everybody but herself. Where's the accountability?
4: You think it's right to blame her?
9: Uh, in part, yeah. I, I, look, uh, it's you, you have uh, a head of the RNC, and you've just um, you've just had that record that uh, Ramaswamy mentioned. Although we. We should remember that Republicans won control of the House in 2022. Um, and the reason they were fighting over who would be the speaker is because they had the majority. Um, on the other hand, it's it's not a record that would really, in the past, I think, earn you reelection as chair of the of the RNC. I mean, they kicked out Michael Steele after the party won 63 seats to take control of the House in 2010. Um, so her, you know, continued uh, uh, presence in that role is is a little bit uh, mysterious. She's well liked. She raises a lot of money, um, but the the party has not done extremely well. Abortion is a problem, and God knows that is not Ronnie McDaniel's fault. I mean, this is this, there's this huge situation in which conservatives had for two generations tried to overturn Roe v. Wade. And clearly had never really planned for what would happen if they succeeded. It's the biggest dog that caught the car problem in the history of the world. That they just didn't—they didn't really think about what would happen with the abortion issue after Roe was struck down. So uh, is, is, is Ron McDaniel like the biggest single factor in all this? I don't think so. I was surprised by Ramaswamy's personal attack on her. On the other hand, uh, I would not be surprised at all if the Republican National Committee chose a new chair at some point, because that's generally what they do when the party uh, has not had a good record.
4: Armie Dillon was the only one to run against her. Yeah,
9: yeah, and and it, w- it wasn't even close. So... Um, What what can you say? I think, you know, if Trump becomes the um, uh, the nominee, then, you know, we'll see have to see what the nominee he becomes the face Mm -hmm. of the party, um, the official face of the party. And we'll have to see what what happens.
4: Ironically, perhaps, in my view, the celebrity would actually get reelected if he does get reelected, he would get reelected on his policies, because the thing that's making Donald Trump seem uh, seem right to many, and maybe be open uh, to to independents or undecideds, is that from the border, to the economy, to international relations, uh, to interest rates, on down, everything seems to have been better under Trump. Yeah.
9: That is the absolute uh, bedrock under these results that we have from the New York Times poll of the six swing states in which Trump is leading Biden in five of them. Everybody said that things were better when Trump was president. They've gotten worse since Biden became president. And other than uh abortion, they don't trust um uh Biden to do to handle anything better than Trump. Uh so and, and if you go to Trump's events, that is his fundamental message. You know, in, in news coverage you only get some snippet of yeah. this or that. But his fundamental message was Things were good when I was president. They've gone to hell since Joe Biden became president. Elect me and I'll yeah. make them good again. I mean, that's his fundamental right. appeal. And a lot of voters accept that.
4: And it's not theory. You could point to the record. So, yep. <laughs> Byron York, always great to get your instant analysis on this breaking news. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. You got it. one i will come back with some thoughts and hopefully your phone calls. Brian Kilmeade Show.
3: Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other, it's Brian Kilmeade.
6: I'm Lester Holt, and welcome to the Republican Kids Table Debate. Mr. Scott, anything you'd like to add? I have a girlfriend. Okay. Uh, Listen about her. She is real, and I know her, and she is my girlfriend, and we met through dating. And for her, I feel a real sense of human love. (laughs) Got it.
4: So that was uh, the cold open. No doubt about it. uh, They used the debates and had Trump walk out there. I'll tell you, I like this guy better than Alec Baldwin, but they took a shot at Tim Scott, who is now out. So let me see. Let's take a look at the debate stage. You got... For sure DeSantis, for sure Haley, I assume for sure Vivek, I assume. So yeah, Hughes who's in. So Nikki Haley, Vivek is in. So it's Vivek, Nikki, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump. The question is, you have Chris Christie and Doug Bergram. Uh, Bergram is not getting anything, but the polling, it looks like Christie's there. The money goals. And Christie runs a tight ship. The question is, will Democrats and other people that just... Chris Christie's just great on these debates. He, I don't care if you're voting for him or not. I don't care if you dislike him. You cannot tell me that he does not add to the debates and can't handle any topic. Just was over in Israel prior to that went to beat with Zelensky over in Ukraine. So... I think that if Chris Christie gets the dollars, I think a lot of Democrats will pour some money into Christie's campaign because they want to see him to stay on there to see if they can last as long to get Donald Trump back in. Because Governor Christie goes after Trump a lot, but he actually has a real broad swath of things he knows. Hey, go to BrianKilme.com. You can order my new book, Teddy and Booker T.
3: Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome
4: to the latest moment of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Michael Goodwin standing by. I come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. We know the big trial for Trump is on today, the civic, uh, uh, the civil trial. And it's a joke. You know how I feel about it. I think you probably feel the same way. But now the defense gets a chance to go on the offense. Don Jr. on the stand. Looks like his dad will be going again. Ivanka obviously won't. That won't be a choice. Eric will go back and just try to say what the hell is going on here. And it's not affecting the polls. If anything, it's just helping. We also are looking into the possibly attempted carjacking of the granddaughter of President Biden, Naomi Biden. Not successful, but believe it or not, Secret Service shot at the guy and they got away. Douglas Murray, as I mentioned at the bottom, they are fresh off his trip to uh, fresh up his trip to Israel. Let's get to the big three.
3: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three.
5: On Saturday, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson presented a funding plan, and he essentially kind of came up with a two-step plan, which is the only difference from how Kevin McCarthy did it. His suggestion is for Pelosi-level spending,
4: well, there you go. Uh, that looks like where we have gotten to that impasse again. Coming up in four days, we are going to see the end of the budget. Are we going to see a shutdown lockdown? Well, it turns out, Olivia Beavers of Politico cites, that the new speaker wants to do what the old speaker did, a continuing resolution. The last time they did that, they lost their
6: job. Number two. When I go back to Iowa, it will not be. As a presidential uh, candidate, I am suspending my campaign. I-, I think the voters have been really clear that they're telling 2024, me. 2024,
4: a major name drops out of the GOP race, Ted Race, Tim Scott. Biden moves to re-election mode, Skeptic surge.
7: Number one. I don't think it will be enough to deter Iran. I think Iran sees great value in stretching U.S. forces. Look, we've deployed two carrier groups, Patriot missiles and aircraft to the region. And that's exactly what Iran wants, as well as their allies, uh, Russia and China. There you go.
4: Israel at war and America at risk. After 46 attacks, we have a series of return fire attacks over in Syria. We blew up a training area and we blew up a depot. Will they get the message? Uh, that was Dan Hoffman. Michael Goodwin joins us on New York Post uh, columnist. So, Michael, we finally hit back 46 attacks, uh, countless TBI complaints from the troops after the explosions, been knocked out by, we think, mostly missile defense, some of them one-way drones. But for the most part, they tried to send a message. So far, no return fire. But after the first retaliation, there were four attacks. Your reaction to for what's happening in Syria and Iraq to our guys.
10: Well, Brian, I think uh, if we step back from the tit for tat kind of approach to this, I think what we're seeing in the region is a real move now by all of the bad guys against Israel and the United States. Um, it seems, it seems to me that, for example, uh, Hezbollah in the north of Israel has stepped up uh, over the weekend its uh, missiles and rockets into Israel. So that that front is heating up. Meanwhile, while you still have the main the main story in Gaza uh, with the Israeli uh, Defense Forces. Uh, but when you see these ancillary groups around the fringes, the Houthis in Yemen, for example, uh, and in Syria, when you see them chipping in uh, to, to fire at America and, uh, and our bases and our service people there, it says to me that this is not this is not over. This could go either way. And it seems to me that they are pushing, pushing, pushing in a way that forces us to respond. Because if we don't, they will just keep upping the ante. So we've got to respond and at least test, you know, let them know we're capable of wiping you out uh, if we really want to do it. So don't, don't, Play that game you know the the, the old Clint Eastwood you know uh, make my day uh, but i I think Biden has been too cautious I understand you don't want to uh, inf- inflame these things further but at the same time unless you respond in a forceful way yeah. they're going to keep Uh, pricking at you and trying to test you and embarrass you and maybe hurt your your service people. Uh, They're going to they're going to raise their profile until we smash it. That's my fear that they are not going to stop until we stop them.
4: Right. Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. And I think now that he's getting some pressure because he's seeing that his Muslim base, is. Uh, his left-wing base, his Palestinian base, pro-Hamas base, is starting to question him. uh, And he's actually doing the right thing. So, again, splitting the difference. Listen to Jay Johnson, his Homeland Security Secretary. I meet the press yesterday. Cut six.
6: If the reporting is to be believed, uh, civilian deaths in Gaza are about to become 10 times the number of Mm. Israeli deaths on October 7th. Uh, Prime Minister said that the Israeli Defense forces are not targeting civilians, of course they 're not targeting civilians. No one really believes that they 're targeting civilians. However, you can target the enemy, the terrorist, and have a callous disregard for civilian deaths and violate the laws of armed conflict and that 's the rising concern across the across the globe right now. I give the administration the Biden administration a lot of credit for Firmly standing behind Israel right after October 7th, but also publicly and privately uh, warning the government of Israel about civilian casualties, about the yeah. possibility. Of- so that's
4: what they're doing. He, yeah, well, they've been asking him to pull back, but I don't think they fully understand. There can't be a tomorrow with Hamas.
10: And and also, uh, Jay Johnson is usually more sensible than that. I agree. Um, And look, Israel can't win in the court of public opinion. And so this idea that if you just, if Israel just behaves better, anti-Semitism is not about Israel behaving. It's not about the Jewish nation's borders. It is about Judaism. It is about Jews. And that's what the world is facing. And I think that what America needs to do is Remove the daylight between the United States and Israel. Israel is fighting a war of survival. This is not... This is not adventuresome. This is not a cowboy thing. They are fighting a war of survival. And the world, of course, much of the world, is happy for that. It would love to see Israel wiped off the map. You know, someone sent around, Brian, something over the weekend about the number of deaths in Darfur, the number of deaths in Ukraine. Uh, why? They, they dwarf anything that's happened in Gaza by by ordinary 10 12 15 times and yet only no one is saying ukraine shouldn't fight back no one is questioning how many russians ukraine kill they're practically celebrated in the new york times but when israel fights back when israel uh, looks like it's about to win suddenly all no, no, we have to worry about the civilians well the civilians are there because hamas wants them there this is how hamas fights and to, to pull Israel back is to give Hamas the victory. People, Hillary Clinton understood that in the beginning, but everybody gets worn down by this criticism. Thankfully, Israel is not worn down by it because it's got to eradicate Hamas. It's got to finish the job. And if it doesn't, there will be another October 7th and another and another. That's what this is about. This is Mm -hmm. not the same tit for tat that happened every couple of years. This is a final battle that Hamas started and wants. And Israel should give it what it wants, which is death.
4: Right. but And the thing is that everyone has in the back of their mind the hostages, at least nine are American, one of which is a three-year-old whose parents were just killed. Think about how how, uh, beyond evil these jihadists are. So think about that the next time they're protesting at the University of Pennsylvania or Tulane, which, by the way, is not Tulane students. I know that for certain people coming from the outside or Harvard or Yale or Columbia. Think about that. The other thing I'm heartened by is, People like real estate billionaire Barry Star- Sternlicht. I don't know him, but evidently he's upset. He's Jewish, and he can't believe these schools are supporting uh, Hamas. So he's given $50 and going on a media campaign targeting uh, Hamas. And he wants the media. He wants the pushback, and he's putting his money behind it. Rather than just keeping these colleges from getting donations, take that money and put it to selling the real story here.
10: You know, Brian, I I think what has happened on our college campuses has been a a very unpleasant shock to a lot of us. I mean, the the raw anti-Semitism that was apparently hiding itself in most cases is now front and center. It can't be ignored, and, and you can't just put it back in the box. This is now a fact that's got to be dealt with. And I think for Sternlich to do what he's doing, I mean, many, many donors uh, are no longer giving to the universities. I, I only give to, my, to my, my school's baseball team because I played baseball. And so that's all I, that's the only donations I would make to my school. Um, but, but look, I, I think that what we've seen now is shocking. And it's just got to – it can't yeah. be rewarded. It can't be ignored. It's It's got to be dealt with. And many of these college presidents are afraid of their students. They're afraid of the radicals on their own campus. They don't
4: want to get fired either.
10: And well, that's right. And the boards of trustees are afraid. You know, they, it's like they put their finger in the wind and see which way the wind is blowing, and that's the way they go. Uh, I think it's going to take a lot of backbone from a lot of adults to to set this straight. But I, I am not mm-hmm. confident because we are we have raised a bunch of brats who think they are entitled, even though they're ignorant. And I think that's one of the great one of the great revelations of this time is that we... This our generations have failed in the sense that we have we have raised these are our kids. This is the this is the fruit of American uh, generations that we have raised these kids who don't know right from wrong and who think that they should run the institutions they're in.
4: Real quick, uh, I want to talk about uh, what they're doing. So President Biden looks like he's going to run again. He's trailing with Trump on every issue in every battleground state. So I predicted, like you would have, that they're going to vilify Trump and say not until he'll be a bad president, he will change democracy, he'll destroy the country. And sure enough, I go to media. Joe Scarborough and John Meacham directly equate Trump's vermin speech to Nazism. And I'm seeing that the same thing for the Washington Post yesterday when they talk about an excerpt from the speech that they didn't like. And you have Jamie Raskin, he will destroy the country if he gets reelected. If they are doing this in November when it's one year away. What are they, is it going to be like if he ends up being the nominee? Here's a little of Jamie Raskin cut 31. The role of the government in his view is to advance his political fortunes and destroy his political enemies. So what would a second term look like? It would look a lot like Vladimir Putin in Russia. It would look a lot like Viktor Orban in Hungary. Right. Or Nazism with John Meacham, who just who's uh, trying to tell Joe Biden that he's FDR. So, yeah. what what is your take on this? How much worse can it get?
10: I, I well, first, Brian, I would just say that I, I regret ever thinking John Meacham was a serious historian. Um, the second, Hillary Clinton went all the way last week. She said, uh, "Hitler, yes, yeah. another Hitler." Um, after you've said that, what else is there to say? I know there's nowhere to go. Uh, so, I, I think that this will not be effective. I think it's so clearly overwrought and so hyperinflated with their own hatred of him. And the other thing is Jamie Raskin is on the oversight committee in the House. He's been the main voice defending Biden against the impeachment inquiry. And he said something last week, which is just astounding, that there's zero evidence that Joe Biden – uh, was involved in his son's business or Ugh. ever made any money from it. Now, this in the same week that uh, James Comer showed $240,000 worth of payments to Joe Biden. Now, as as Comer says, uh, the, the payments from Jim Biden were both uh, labeled loan repayment, but he's asked the White House for evidence that a loan was ever made. They refused to give an answer. I think they refused to give an answer because there never was a loan made, and there's tax implications. Mm -hmm. But as Comer says, this proves, even if it was a loan repayment that that was made because Jim and Hunter Biden got a lot of money from China— that proves that Joe Biden profited from these transactions. And so if that's not impeachment inquiry mm-hmm. material – oh, and by the way, this happened when he was vice president. So if that's not impeachment material, I don't know what is. And I think if people like Raskin want to have any credibility left, they're going to have to get on the, get on the stick here and, igno- and acknowledge that facts are facts.
4: Right. Michael Goodwin, thanks so much. New York Post, that's where to read him. Thanks, Michael.
10: My pleasure, Brian. Thank
4: you. Uh, at M. Goodwin underscore NY Post. Listen, we come back. I'm going to squeeze in some of your calls. I saw a lot of you over the weekend. My book tour has begun. I was in Ponte Vedra at the Villages at Vero Beach. Um, and I, I was great seeing everybody again. I've been out in a year being able to talk to people at that level. And then we've got the Patriot Awards. I'll be signing there. Then going over to Tennessee and Alabama. Just go to BrianKilme.com so this way I could see you in person. Uh, more on that in just a moment. Brian Kilmead Show.
3: Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade.
4: Tuskegee, in particular, becomes a place where politicians want to go. McKinley, Grover Cleveland, William Howard Taft. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. What does that mean? Here you have this,
6: a black man born into slavery, who grows to a level where he becomes an advisor to three presidents. The man was a genius. He was able to prove that the American dream is actually possible. That's what really catapulted him into the national stage, because he said, if we work together, we can have our differences. I recognize you have a difference, and I recognize I have a difference, but
4: Progress is mutual. The revolutionary message was first heard at the 1895 Cotton States and International Exposition in Atlanta. Looking to not only advance his institute, but the perception of his race, Booker T. Washington became the first African American male to address a crowd as diverse as his country. Well, that was uh, just a clip from a a Fox Nation special that uh, is available now. Hopefully, it will be on the channel shortly. Uh, Teddy and Booker T, How Two American Icons Plays the Path to Racial Equality. I really enjoyed seeing everyone in Ponte and work with uh, our great affiliate, WOKV. uh, And also be able to go to the villages and see our our fan base over there was fantastic. It just gets bigger every time. And then to Vero Beach, uh, to their independent bookstore out there. So I got a chance to meet a lot of you, saw you in action. And I have to say, I came back, I kind of forgot it was fall slash winter, 32 degrees. So from 88 to 32, 50 degrees, back in action. This morning I started up the car, getting set to go to the train station, and there's frost on the windows. I can't believe it's the same country. But I should not act surprised that fall is here, and it's just not acknowledged out in uh, out in Florida. So listen, when we come back, Douglas Murray joins me, where he just spent some time is really what the whole country's been thinking about and acting with. Uh Douglas Murray just spent some time in... Uh, in Israel, talked to all the officials, went to where the massacre took place, where the wall was breached over in Gaza, and you saw what was left of the kibbutzes, those small towns and the people. Now the number's down to 1,200 lives lost, Uh, 700-plus are civilians, and we have at least 244 hostages. We'll see about getting them back.
3: If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. But those who uh,
6: those who protest for Hamas, you're protesting for sheer evil. There are a lot of misguided people out there who don't, don't know the facts. You're talking to people who deliberately targeted civilians, who raped and murdered women, who raped uh, uh, who who beheaded Uh, Men who burnt babies alive, who kidnapped uh, little babies and hostage and and Holocaust survivors, you name it. These are the people that you are supporting.
4: That is Benjamin Netanyahu, who's doing a lot more interviews these days and over the weekend. uh, And he puts himself out there and every interview ends this way. Are you going to take responsibility for what happened? A lot of people think his political career is over. The parliamentary system is not something we deal with. Uh, but it's something that could collapse their government. But right now, it's all about coming together. That's what I hear. But what does Douglas Murray know? He's in Tel Aviv right now, Fox News contributor, bestselling author, National Review Institute fellow. Uh, his new book is The War on the West. His latest book is The War on the West. Douglas, what, I hear you're in traffic in Tel Aviv. That would be a prime target for Hezbollah, who I understand is okay. ratcheting up the rockets.
8: Yes, that's right. There's been more and more activity on the northern border in recent days, which uh, is obviously causing a lot of alarm. Israel is currently fighting, obviously, a very intense uh, house-to-house battle inside Gaza against Hamas. Um, but, of course, all eyes are also on the northern border, where uh, there has been, as I say, a, a, an increased in activity, some uh, uh, anti-tank artillery, um, some Machine gun fire, as well as rockets, and of course, that's a great concern uh, to the Israeli government and the people of Israel, because uh, Hezbollah has uh, tens of thousands of rockets stored there.
4: They do, uh, but there's a sense too. I imagine you tell me that Hezbollah is only going to get stronger, and this country's at war on a war footing right now. Is there, a, is there any part of the Israel IDF that thinks to themselves, should we just get this over with now?
8: Uh, I'm sure there are, uh, and there's obviously a wide variety of opinion. Um, I think most people are grateful that the northern front hasn't opened up. Um, and uh, it's an interesting scenario because, of course, Iran has a great deal to do with the funding and arming of not just uh, Hezbollah but Hamas as well. It seems that they haven't, as it were, tried to come to Hamas's aid by uh, making situation harder for Israel by opening the northern front. But uh, that's sort of quite commonplace for Iran's behavior, which is that the revolutionary government uh, you know, both uh, keeps proxies going and also sacrifices them as needs be.
4: How would you describe everything, Douglas? You've been in war zones. You were just in Ukraine a short time ago. Well, you went and checked out the uh, the, the side of the invasion uh, where the massacre took place what could you tell our listeners Yes.
8: well I mean I think that as I wrote in the New York Post uh, the other day uh, the world really still needs to know a lot more and to realize a lot more about the horror that unfolded um, on the morning of the 7th of October it was um, a, a, a massacre I think unprecedented in recent history uh, for its barbarism for its uh, scale, uh, for the sheer uh, sadistic glee that the Hamas terrorists took in in the most atrocious acts of evil. And I think that because, as always happens uh, in any war involving Israel, people move straight on to what will the Israeli response be. The world hasn't actually spent enough time. No one's had enough time to look at, uncover, and realize actually what happened that day, because it was a battalion-sized attack of terrorists on Israel that day from sea, air, land. Um, they went they went as deep into the country as they could, and uh, I've both seen the sites of the massacres and, and spent part of today talking with uh, survivors and also the families of... People who were kidnapped by Hamas and were taken into Gaza. And that's a really, um, as you just heard from the prime minister's comments, so that's the scale of that is something that really would would, would horrify people. Um, I spoke earlier to a man who's almost in his entire family, including all the young children kidnapped and have been taken into Gaza. Nobody knows if they're alive, if they're well. Uh, I spoke to another young woman who not only had her cousin abducted, kidnapped and taken into Gaza by Hamas, but also her her grandmother, who's in her 80s, has serious health issues, can't even get to the bathroom on her own. And Hamas kidnapped her. And there's footage of them gleefully taking this 80-something-year-old woman on a golf cart and taking her into Gaza and just so happy about doing so, so, so happy about about violating and and abducting and a helpless old woman it 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 really is um something which i think which it's enough to shock even those of us who think we we can't be shocked that much
4: how about the fact that uh, among those things and those are horrific uh we find out that a three-year-old american kid three years old whose parents were killed in Mm -hmm. front of him is also there so one of nine and And most of these people are i mean there's no rhyme or reason, take as much as you can, and we know more of the game plan. The game plan was to go deeper into Israel and kill more people yes. in the most horrific way imaginable
8: well, Hamas 's leaders have said that in recent days, which is they if they get the chance, they plan to do this again and again and again, and that 's why I think there's an extraordinary unity in israel uh, Israel has obviously been a very divided country in recent times, every country has divisions as we all know, but when a country faces an atrocity like that, it really can come together, and Israel really has. And it's remarkable to see the young men and women and people of all ages doing whatever it is they can do uh, to help their country and help their country win at this time.
4: Yes, um, this is a bigger question, Douglas. There's a big push now for a ceasefire, for a pause, to uh, make sure civilian ca- there's too many civilian casualties. In fact, here is Emmanuel Macron, cut one.
8: I think this is the only solution we have. This is fire. Because it's impossible to explain we want to fight against terrorism by killing innocent people. De facto, today, civilians are bombed. De facto. These babies, these ladies, these old people are bombed and killed.
4: Okay, that is true, but never the intention uh, Emmanuel Macron says it's time to pull back. Do you get any of that when you leave the You've heard of that when you leave the country or read press from other nations, right? What is the right thing to do?
8: Well, it's a, what's very striking is that uh, European leaders in particular and American leaders to some extent are being uh, pressured to call for these ceasefires. And there have been uh, the announcement of sort of four-hour pauses is what the Israeli government Saying. It seems that the Israeli government was pushed into this, actually not by Macron, but by uh, President Biden, um, and that they couldn't resist the political pressure, which, which came from him to have these, these pauses. Um, what's striking about it, of course, is that the Israelis are trying to move in and put a stranglehold on Hamas and the Gaza. And any ceasefire, any any let up of that is, of course, only going to help Hamas. Macron is an interesting case because, of course, he's saying this for domestic political reasons. Don't forget, not only have they had huge protests on the streets of Paris and other cities in support of the Palestinians in recent weeks, but also, of course, Macron banned protests, and yet they went ahead. So this is a uh, um, a very, very tense situation for France, as it is for America. This, This conflict in Israel... This attack on Israel by Hamas has opened up serious fault lines in our own societies, in France, in Britain, in America, in campuses in America, on the streets of America. And as I've said since this conflict began, um, Israel can and should look after itself. But we in America and in other countries in the West have to look after ourselves as well, because the same hatred is in our midst.
3: Look,
4: yeah, look at the size of these crowds and these protests for Hamas for the Palestinians. Now there's going to be a huge pro-Israeli rally in Washington D.C. I hope it's a pushback. I hope a lot of these uh, these donors so. start uh, advertising and getting the word out about who the bad guys are. But here's a bigger question, Douglas: Is it possible to win a war the way we used to win wars in World War II? Did we drop? Did we uh, worry about civilians in Berlin? Do we bear about civilians in Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Will we attack first? Did we have a choice? We had to win. If you have to win a war, can you do it?
8: Israel is the only country in the world that is expected to give fuel and other uh, necessities to its enemies in a war. There's huge international opprobrium for, for, for Israel not giving enough electricity supplies to Hamas. I don't know of another conflict in history in which people were expected to help their enemies to this extent. But the bigger question, the bigger the bigger picture on this, Brian, and I don't need to tell you this, but this, this might be interesting for some listeners: is that the the atrocities in October were so appalling against Israel that that it doesn't matter whether you're on the right or the left, pro Netanyahu or anti-Netanyahu. The revulsion is so complete, and I mean, I just. Uh, Just literally now I was in the car back from a trauma hospital uh, a recovery unit uh, where I was speaking with a very hard interview to do, I have to say, uh, with a father in one of the kibbutz, one of the communities near Gaza that was attacked. And he he lost his his wife and and 14-year-old son who died beside him. Um, And he said to me at the end of the interview, he said, you know, I'm of the left. Lots of people in these kibbutz around Gaza are. They're peaceniks, they're pro-peace, peace peace activists, pro-Palestinian, and much more. He said, I'm of the left, but we cannot live with these people beside us. And I don't think there's a single person in Israel at this stage who thinks that they can. The status quo up to the beginning of October has been proven to be absolutely unlivable. And so something big will change. Israel, in my view, should be allowed to do what it needs to do to protect its citizenry. And I just hope that the rest of the civilized world, who's had little tastes of the terror that Israel had unleashed on it last month, stand behind Israel this time of trial.
4: I hear you. Um, It's just so good that you go there and you get a perspective. And the thing is, I think it was so important to point out, the people that they killed were the most sympathetic for the Palestinian cause and for Hamas. A lot of them were volunteers. These people that went to a concert uh, were the least threatening to Hamas or a Palestinian in Israel, and they're the ones who were the initial victims. And then it went into the military and beyond. Uh, Douglas, I look forward to catching up with you when you come back.
8: I look forward to it, Brian. All right, th- st-
4: thanks. Uh, stay safe. One eighties. He called us from traffic in Tel Aviv. How great is that? One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Brian Kilmicho. So glad you're here. When we come back. I get to hear from you. Uh, don't move.
3: Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
7: After new polls show Donald Trump leading Joe Biden, Democratic strategists are calling Biden's re-election campaign a five-alarm fire. Which is scary for Biden, because in a fire, you have to use the stairs. Um. All right, that
4: was one of the jokes that survived uh, to help our show get better on SNL. They mocked, of course, the Republicans. But you could always, my goodness, uh, that was a joke. But if you see the president, uh, listen, it was Saturday, so I don't think you could do it. But here you are, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and the President of the United States puts a wreath down and then totally loses himself. He stands, he walks away, he turns back towards the soldier. The soldier has to turn him back, and then he goes way to the other side and then gets starts shaking people's hands after a brief pause. It's crazy that he's the president of the United States and wants four more years, and no one can really stop him. Here's Ron from WABC. Hey, Ron. How are you? How are you? Good. What's in your mind? So,
9: so as usual, I usually have something to say because it's education, education, education. The the fact of what our, our university students are not being taught, that they're coming out protesting along with other people that usually just come out to protest. But what happened with the million or so Muslims that are being concentration camp-like kept and worked to death in China – where were they when that was going on? And that's going on right now, as a matter of fact. SMC. Yes, Muslims, and nothing is being said. Why aren't they? Are they not being told about it, or are they pro-China? Uh, what is going on, and why aren't
0: they protesting about that?
4: People are scared to death okay. of China. Uh, and in in our in our country, there's Uyghurs that come out. There are Chinese there are Uyghurs that come out here, and there are Muslims that come out. Very small numbers. No one brings it up anymore. You just took a whole group of people, Muslims, and you put them into concentration camps and made them convert. When we were over in Afghanistan and Iraq, if we had a if we had a Koran that was caught next to a garbage pail, it was a scandal. We had to apologize for it. We even had Gitmo. But yet, these, the Muslims have no problem. Saudi Arabia, no problem. Chinese officials want to come over. Okay. How many Muslims? A million? Okay. Concentration camps, can't get out. Forced labor, organ harvesting, doesn't matter. They're part of the hypocrisy. But, Ron, people should understand. When we get into this debate, if you're at Thanksgiving and the people start engaging you that Israel should give the Palestinians a state, Hamas does not want a state. Hamas doesn't care about Palestinians. They are jihadists. They just want to kill they want to kill everybody. They totally intimidate the Palestinians, even in the West Bank. So that's really important, the hypocrisy here. There's no purity of thought. There's no purity of mission, not by a long shot. And that's why when people say, OK, let's go to a ceasefire, they can cease fire and leave Hamas in place. Because, do you know, they turn down gas and energy to fuel their hospital The IDF risked their lives, gets to the hospital, and it was turned down by Hamas. So don't say uh, Israel's got to show a little bit more heart when it comes to civilians. Here is Mark Short. He used to be the chief of staff for Vice President Mike Pence. Cut seven.
7: I think there's urgency, and I think Speaker Johnson is uniquely positioned right now in a very uh, divided conference to help unite it and get that done. I don't know that I accept the premise, though, Kristen, your question, that the House Republicans and the people on the stage are in the same position as the Biden administration. I do think the Biden administration is getting weak-kneed on this. I think it's concerning. There's never been—there's not been an attack in 80 years like this on the Israeli and Jewish people. We're seeing a rise of anti-Semitism like we have not seen, and yet the messaging is concerned about Islamophobia. I think that the reality is we need to stand with Israel right now. And I think the Republicans on that stage and Republican members of Congress are willing to do that.
4: Yeah, and, and what he was initially talking about was the funding. Funding runs out November 17th. Biden wants them both coupled, Ukraine and Israel. Senator Schumer said he's putting together a spending plan that doesn't include either. Wow. And now you have the House who can't even agree on all their appropriations bills. I think they're up to seven. Uh, they need 10. Mike Lawer is somebody who just went over there. New York, he is in a tough blue district, but he's been so effective, I think it's a strong case for reelection. Here he is weighing in on ABC, cut eight.
7: The bottom line here is, yes, we need to provide humanitarian uh, relief and we want to avoid civilian casualties. But this 11,000 civilian number uh, that keeps getting repeated by the press is factually wrong. Uh, Within that number, thousands of Hamas terrorists have been killed. And obviously, Hamas is using these civilians as human shields. And so the, the oppressor here, the people that are responsible for the deaths in Gaza, is Hamas.
4: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, we got to keep that straight. I don't know why he could figure it out. Nobody else can. Quick note uh, I'm going to be signing Teddy and Booker T over in, in Connecticut. Uh, I'm going to be doing that tomorrow. It's a, pretty deep in the Connecticut, actually. But a beautiful uh, bookstore, R.J. Julia Booksellers. Hope to see everybody there. I start signing uh, Madison, Connecticut, I should say. Uh, I start signing at 5 o'clock. And then I'll be in Brentwood, Tennessee, November 17th at 5. Chattanooga, Tennessee, right after on the 18th, November 18th, same, same day. I'll go to Madison, Alabama after. Montgomery on the 19th. And Bayshore, New York on the 25th.
3: news radio studios in midtown manhattan it's the fastest growing radio talk show brian kilmeade
4: Hi, right, one latest moment to the brian kilmeade show coming to you from midtown manhattan heard around the country around the world there's really a hotbed of anti-semitism and embarrassed to say that uh somebody's been working here for over 25 years and uh, live on Long Island where it's really not a problem. In fact, it was a rally for Israel yesterday. I have not heard a lot of that cropping up in New York City. It's been an embarrassment. Uh, just as bad in the UK. I'm watching what's happening in London, seeing the the chaos that's taking place there. How people could be looking at Israel as the bad guy and and, and, and uh, anti-Semitism as the reason is just beyond me. But it's gotta stop and hopefully the pushback begins tomorrow in DC, where there's gonna have the biggest Israel. Israel demonstration, they think, ever in our country. Andy McCarthy standing by, Jennifer Griffin at the bottom of the hour, the latest on this Pentagon, retaliatory strikes in Syria. So let's get to the big three.
3: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three.
5: On Saturday, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson presented a funding plan, and he essentially kind of came up with a two-step plan, which is the only difference from how Kevin McCarthy did it. His suggestion is for Pelosi-level spending. Yep.
4: CR time. It's true. Five days to the shutdown. Speaker Johnson talking about CR, continuing resolution. Last speaker that brought that up. Oh, well, let me see. Let me see. Oh, he was told to leave.
6: Number two. When I go back to Iowa, it will not be. As a presidential uh, candidate, I am suspending my campaign. I-, I think the voters have been really clear that they're telling me not now, Tim.
4: Wow. Uh, just like that, Senator Tim Scott, Sunday night on Trey Gowdy show 2024 drops out. Biden moves to reelection mode. Skeptic surge on his left. We bring you inside the sprint to the official 24 campaign.
7: Number one. I don't think it will be enough to deter Iran. I think Iran sees great value in stretching U.S. forces. Look, we've deployed two carrier groups, Patriot missiles and aircraft to the region. And that's exactly what Iran wants, as well as their allies, uh, Russia and China.
4: I know Dan's the expert, but I'm not sure Iran wants a huge military presence for uh, for America. Israel, excuse me, Russia and China, absolutely. Absolutely. Israel at war and America at risk after 46 attacks, the first return series of fires hitting strikes yesterday. No, no answer. Yes. From the Iranian resistance, plus the future of Gaza and the protest pushback Uh, with me right now is Andrew McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Andy, welcome back. Okay, Andy, can you hear me?
0: Yeah, Brian, I'm here.
4: Okay, great. So, Andy, uh, your your reaction tomorrow, there's going to be some pushback. Pro-Israeli movement uh, and uh, showing in Washington, D.C., way overdue, don't you think?
0: I do. I just hope it has the desired effect with our political leaders. I'm very worried, Brian, to hear uh, Secretary Blinken over the weekend lecture Israel about uh, civilian casualties under circumstances where everybody knew that Hamas is using civilian infrastructure, including these hospitals, uh, to to actually be where they store their arsenal uh, and ground zero for where they conduct military operations. I mean, everybody knew that. So if you're gonna lecture Israel about, you know, you, you we don't wanna see firefights in hospitals, then how are they supposed to win this thing? And I, I say that because, unless you allow them to win, then you are going to sustain Hamas, which means you have a future of more civilian casualties. The war is terrible. Um, The prospect of collateral damage and civilian casualties is terrible. But the reason that those civilians are trapped in that hospital is because Hamas didn't evacuate it. Uh, So it's Hamas that's responsible for these casualties. And I think our government, I hope that our government feels pressure – from the broad middle of America that supports Israel and changes its tune. Because I don't see how you can – if Israel doesn't win this, then we just have a future of more jihadism and civilian casualties.
4: Yeah, 300 liters of fuel were going to be brought to the Shifa uh, hospital, but it was rejected. Hamas forbade the hospital from taking it. Gaza's hamas run health ministry has been warned for weeks that the hospitals are running out of fuel – The IDF delivered it on great risk to them, and it was rejected. What more proof do you need? They say underneath that hospital is a network of tunnels. Let's see. Hamas says, no, we don't have it there. Right, including an American hostage. I mean, multiple American
0: hostages, but we're now hearing that there's a toddler who's an American hostage. Three,
4: three years old.
0: Yeah, and and I have to say, Brian, you know, I'm I'm old enough to remember how um, I was in college at the time, how the hostage crisis, the Iranian hostage crisis, destroyed Jimmy Carter's presidency. I mean, there were a lot of problems with it, but that was like the signal issue of the 1980 campaign. And I just, I believe that because they they worry that it will redound to Trump's benefit, that the media is not covering the fact that in addition to all the other atrocious stuff that came out of October 7th, Thirty-three Americans were killed, which is bigger than almost uh, most of the terrorist attacks that we've suffered since the 1980s. Um, you have at least 10 American hostages being held, which should be—if this was a Republican administration—page one in every newspaper in America would be about no questions crisis. Um, so, you know, Iran is making war on us. We have, like, uh, I think I saw with Brett Baer reporting last week that we've had something in the neighborhood of about four dozen attacks on American troops. I think Jennifer Griffin said, you know, 25 traumatic brain injuries. I, I mean, Iran's making war on us, and, you know, you can read about it on page 27 at the bottom of the page in the New York Times. It's unbelievable.
4: Yeah, I know. And we answered back. And I'm going to talk to Jennifer about that in 15 minutes. We answered back with two strikes. One was a training base. The other was a depot. And there was secondary explosions, according to the video that they're showing everyone. So I'm glad they hit that. But you know where the bulk of the attacks are coming from? Iraq, 14. So they come in at 14 in Iraq, but we're hitting Syria. Listen, I know there's there's real bad outfits in Syria, too. But what are we so afraid of in Iraq? We we know that place like the back of our hands right now.
0: Yeah, well, I kind of agree with what I heard uh, H.R. McMaster say last week, which is we have to convey to the Iranians that we know what the return address is uh, on on all these attacks. And, yes, they're launching from Iraq. But I think, you know, unless the Ayatollah thinks that there's a smart bomb coming through his window or is at least made to fear that that is a possibility, I don't think you're going to get their attention.
4: You know, I think that it's going to be interesting to see – who stands with whom? And you have to go out there and show people the video of what happened October seventh, and know that they feel as though they didn't finish the job. The game plan was to go even deeper into Israel, get more hostages, kill more people. And I go back to that intercept of that of that killer calling back on the on the uh, the Israeli who he just killed, grabbing their right. phone, calling back to his house, saying, "Mom, I've killed Jews. I've killed Jews. I got the blood on my hand. Check out the WhatsApp." Dad, I killed Jews. Look, listen to me. I killed Jews. And so I said, just come home. He goes, no, no, I killed Jews. I swear. You make me so proud. I mean, think about that mindset.
0: Yeah, well, you know, the, the difference between today, Brian, and 30 years ago, and I'm dating myself here, but when I tried the blind shake and the, and the people who bombed the World Trade Center 30 years ago now, we were able to prove in court what the ideology was that fueled these attacks. And there was no doubt about the fact that it wasn't about Zionism. It's anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. It just ha- it happens to be a fact. It's, it's part of their doctrine. So, you know, for years, we've had transnational progressives in America and around the world who want to delude themselves and the rest of us into believing that this is just a parochial political issue that's about Zionism. And in fact, it's about Jew hatred, and it's always been about Jew hatred. We knew that in the 1990s, but for some reason, we don't want to register it today.
4: So Chris Christie's there, and here's what he said. Cut 12.
6: I intend to go back um, to the U.S. and uh, talk about this regularly, so that uh, the American people who are being asked to sacrifice and to help uh, Israel financially and militarily will know that what they're doing is uh, not only a, a noble effort um, on their part, but also um, what friends do for friends. And uh, America has no greater friend in the world than Israel. And uh, we need to make sure that we refresh that friendship um, at times of peril like this.
4: Would you pointed out to this problem and this mindset in 2011. You told us you wrote a book about it. You tried to contact Senator Schumer about it, but he wasn't buying it.
0: Well, I think it's not... Um... This isn't a deep, dark mystery. It's just something that we don't want to grapple with. And I I applaud Governor Christie for what he's doing, because really what this comes down to is, are you on the side of civilization or barbarism? Um, You know, there are people in the government who would like you to believe that this is a parochial political dispute that's about, uh, you know, Israel and the Palestinians and what the ultimate set, uh, you know, what the ultimate outcome is going to be, uh, this idea of a two-state solution. The only people interested in a two-state solution are Israel, um, and I, you know, I, I imagine that they're uh, less interested in it by the day. But the people who, you know, everybody in the world is saying let's have a two-state solution. One side wants to destroy the other one. You can't have a two-state solution, and it's not a parochial political mm-hmm. dispute. It's sh- Sharia supremacist ideology that wants to wipe out what it perceives as the enemies of Islam and it doesn't perceive anybody to be more an enemy of islam than jews and that's just a fact you know i wish it wasn't true i hate to be blunt to say it but it's a doctrinal fact um and until we until we come to grips with it and are are amenable to looking at it in the eye and understanding it needs to be destroyed then we're going to you know, we're going to be in this continuous loop where every four or five years we have something atrocious like this occur.
4: So so they're trying to make heads of it. They don't understand. They have to make sure the American public is zoned in on this. They probably know that this administration's terrible communicators. They don't come off confident. And we know the president's having trouble getting out a sentence. Michael Herzog weighed in. He's the president of Israel. Cut 13. All
1: right.
8: What we see today with more and more people uh, moving to the south indicates to us that these people do not want to serve as human shields for Hamas. They understand. They don't like us, but they don't like Hamas either.
4: And that Benjamin Netanyahu later on says, we have to have a presence in the region. And they say, no, you don't. He said, yeah, we do. And he says that there is no partner yet, and certainly not a boss who can't even control Ramallah. But if you... The fact is, they say that most Palestinians know that Hamas did this. They brought it on themselves. They don't like them, but they keep voting for them, or they voted for them the only time they had a chance.
0: Yeah, that's right. Look, look, I think that part of the big problem that we have here is this democracy fetish, where it's an idea, that, you know, this idea that um, the only legitimate government is a government that people vote for. Um, if If you give that advantage to Sharia supremacists, you have what we have here, which is you had one election in the West Bank in 2005, and one election in Gaza in 2006, and never another one, because these people believe in one person, one vote, one time, and then they install Sharia, and there's never another vote. So what you need to have, while hopefully democratic institutions develop over time, you need to have rulers in these places. I hate to say this, but like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, where um, there are authoritarian rulers, but actually civil rights in those countries uh, does, do a lot better than they would under Sharia, where it's systematically di- discriminatory and repressive. What do you and think? And yet, we're, yeah. we're just—we have to have democracy. We have to have people vote. But if you—if that's where you're coming from, this is what you're going to get.
4: Well, a couple of things. Uh, what does it mean for the Columbia's, the NYUs, the Hunter Colleges that we're seeing, and that we're seeing the activism right there on campus? You said you saw that in 2011 when you wrote your book. What? It, but but where is the constituency for it? I mean, there's nothing admirable I mean, there's nothing admiral about the Hamas ex- extremist movement. I mean, I haven't heard anything about this until these October 7th attacks. Where has it been?
0: Well, the Muslim Brotherhood started the Muslim Students associations in the 1960s, and there was just a handful of them at first. Um, but over time, this is now 60 years, right? So they've uh, you now have four or five chapters in most universities in the United States and Canada, and they are the propagators not just of like Hamas jihadism, but the, the Muslim Brotherhood has an entire Sharia-oriented, plan. In fact, I would I would recommend to people, Brian, that they read uh Ian Ali's wonderful yeah. essay that she wrote over the weekend uh about how how her life, the trajectory of her life uh has changed from being steeped in radical Islam to to finding Christ. Um and it's not I'm not trying to make a, a religious point. So much as I'm trying to say, read what Ian says about how she grew up and what was drummed into her and how she mm-hmm. was indoctrinated. And then I think you'll understand what's happening in these universities because it's the same program. It's yeah, we Muslim had the son Dullo of Hamas on
4: one of the founders, and he, he explained yep. it all in detail, put it in a book. They did a movie. And now he's speaking out saying, uh, don't worry about collateral damage. You have to stop these guys. They have to die. And you yep. know, his dad is in prison, but he's talking about uh, everybody his dad worked with, paid, uh, and uh, I guess bread, uh, except him. Andy, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. All right, listen, we're going to come back and take your calls. And then Jennifer Griffin on the latest uh, couple of strikes that went into Syria to dissuade Iran's militias from attacking us. Will it work? Brian Kilmeade Show.
3: Educating, entertaining, enlightening, you're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions, hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show.
4: So over the weekend I was on with Howie Kurtz promoting the president Freedom Fighter, but of course we talk about what's happening in the media, more than happy to do it, Leslie Marshall on with me. And we're talking about Trump and Biden. And she's trying to say that Trump is doing just as bad as Biden in terms of memory, performance, speeches. Uh, I know his enemies are doing that on the Republican side. They're rivals, I should say, not enemies. So I want you to hear this exchange and listen to what she said. The problem is her facts are all wrong and I'll prove it. And Rolling Stone wrote this up. They were they were able we were able to get a hold of them, showed him I was right. And they fixed it to a degree. Media, I didn't. But listen. You know,
1: this week, I, I I saw repeatedly, you know, video clip after video clip of Donald Trump uh, talking about the current president, Barack Obama, who is not the current president.
4: As
10: if,
3: yeah. So,
1: I mean, you know, we want, we, want, we, want to, we want to split these things apart. And honestly, in defense of both of them... They're they're human. I went into the supermarket the other day and I couldn't remember what the heck I was getting, and I'm not in my 70s yet. Although (laughs) I may feel it or even look it someday. (laughs) Yes, yes,
4: yes. There's no way. (laughs) You can't compare yourself to Joe Biden. There's no way. And Donald Trump keeps saying that because he believes Obama's pulling the strings. I talked to him off camera about that. I talked to him on radio about that. I said, Why well, and I corrected him on the radio interview. Please go back and listen. I yeah. said, You mean Joe Biden? He goes, No, Joe Biden, he's convinced Barack Obama's running the country. That's why he says it. He wants you to think oh, that Oh Brian, come on. And he thinks that's that's, advantage. I, I,
1: that's good. That's good. You should be you should be his manager's campaign. That's, right, okay. that's a really good So show. so
4: she says that you should be his manager. Everyone says, Oh, what a great comeback. We're up against a break right now, but let's listen to Cut twenty nine. Yeah, cut play quote 29. I'll come out. It's all coming through Iran, and Obama
10: wants to—he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to mention—he doesn't even mention them in his
4: statements. It's all coming through Iran. But well, you mean President Biden. So, uh, uh, but right you know, now— No, I also mean Obama. What do you mean? I mean Obama and Biden, but I, I, Obama is Biden's boss, in case you didn't— See what I'm talking about? That's what I was referring to. That's the facts.
3: The fastest three hours in radio, you're with Brian Kilmeade.
2: We need to, one, secure the border. We need to make sure we have the backs of Ukraine and we need to have the backs of of Israel. But focus on who's supporting who. It is interesting that the Taiwanese, they want the West to help Ukraine. Why? Because they know if Ukraine wins, then China won't invade Taiwan and we won't have to deal with that. There's a reason that, you know, the Ukrainians want us supporting Israel. Why? Because they know if Iran wins, Russia wins, and they don't want to do that. Everybody else sees this unholy alliance, except for Americans. Americans have their head in the sand. If we do this right in I, Ukraine and Israel...
4: I agree have- with the ambassador slash governor. I mean, I can't believe the only people I talk to and they say, well, we got to worry about our border. Um, you know, Ukraine is not our problem. Uh, we only have to help Israel. They don't see the bigger picture when it seems to me so obvious. Or they say, you're warmongers. Nobody thinks... People in the military are the last ones that want to fight, and people who are in foreign policy knows the gravity of what happens after or during a war. Nobody wants it, but there's a danger in refusing to do it. Jennifer Griffin uh, lives that every day, Fox News' is chief national security correspondent. Jennifer, welcome back.
2: Thank you, Brian.
4: Jennifer, you, do you the most people you talk to in the Pentagon, do they agree with that, that these are all— linked and they they seems to be you can't just say israel's the problem ukraine is the challenge taiwan's the problem they see a linkage
2: absolutely brian i mean as you know i have been covering the middle east for my entire adult life and i've been at the pentagon for the last 16 years and Every day we are looking at this matrix of problems and to not understand how they're all interconnected and how if you send a signal of weakness or that you're not willing to uh, get involved on the right side of, of a conflict, in, particularly when you're, if we're talking about Ukraine, because that is a clear-cut violation by Russia invading another country, trying to erase the map of Europe. And and Putin has, has said that he will go further. I mean, all you have to do is listen to our NATO allies who are in those frontline states, whether it's
5: Poland or the
2: Baltic countries, they know what happens. They know their history. And we as Americans need to know our history and need to understand how President Xi and President Putin are are looking to see whether uh, the U.S. is weak-kneed and whether it's going to simply focus inward and not be a leader in the world. And at at that point, once they realize that the U.S. is not going to fund support for Ukraine or Or other uh, other situations, where we have our military overseas, then they're going to. It's going to. They'll they'll go further. They'll they'll run amok. You'll see Taiwan taken over by China. It is so dangerous right now. And so to be playing around with these petty small amounts of money that we're talking about on Capitol Hill. I mean, we're talking about uh, when you hear a few billion dollars. Of course, to you and me, that's a lot of money. But when you're talking about a massive defense budget that is supposed to prevent wars. Uh sending $30 billion to Ukraine to make sure that they hold the line against a, a, an authoritarian dictator like Putin is, is a small – that's why you have a large defense budget.
7: Exactly.
4: And by the way, we all contribute to it. You know, we have this sort of defense budget. When you have your tax dollars, you do it because we want to project a, a, a sense of strength. So yesterday we understand Sunday uh, time zone allowing uh, – we hit two separate locations in Syria. This is a response to uh, four attacks on us since we attacked uh, since Thursday. Uh, what were those sites, and do you know about its effectiveness in, in taking out the target?
2: Well, Brian, we were the first to report this yesterday. In fact, I got a, a tip um, um, over the weekend that this has had happened. And we had, an expect, we had been expecting the U.S. military to respond, because almost daily our troops in Syria and Iraq, you have 950 uh, U.S. troops in Syria who are kind of keeping the lid on ISIS there, and you have 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq making sure that the Iraqi government doesn't fall and then get taken over by Iran. and those those bases where they are have been taking constant-fire rockets and drones from the Iranian proxy forces. Now, fortunately, no U.S. troops have been killed in any of those attacks, and the U.S. Uh, military has uh, beefed up the air defense systems, they've sent more Patriot batteries over there, and the um, and the, the troops on the ground, the U.S. troops, have been very effective at shooting down the drones being sent by these Iranian proxies. But it is constantly they're under fire, so this is the third time since since uh, October 17th, that the U.S. has carried out airstrikes in eastern Syria. This time, the the target was a little more significant than the past um, uh, targeting raids and the they bombed an IRGC, an Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps headquarters. They killed about six to seven uh Iranian proxy fighters who were sleeping at the at the base. And then at a second location in eastern Syria they hit another weapon storage facility, which is where they do a lot of their training and the Iranian proxy groups <clears throat> and we know that they hit that <clears throat> excuse me, Brian, we know that we hit that, uh, that the U.S. uh, military hit that second base because for two hours afterwards, there were secondary explosions. And so that means there was a lot of ammunition, a lot of weaponry at that facility. What happened in response, the uh, Iranian proxies were clearly angry at what they had lost because within minutes, uh, a a base where U.S. military is based in um, eastern Syria near the Conoco oil fields came under fire. There were about 16, 17 rockets fired at that uh, at that base. No injuries, no damage. But um, and then there were three other uh, attacks on U.S. forces in in eastern Syria today. What's happening what? is that the what's happening is that the 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 U.S. is going to have to send a stronger deterrent message to these Iranian proxies. And there's a great deal of hesitation at the White House and at the National Security Council level of not wanting to broaden out the conflict or give Iran any excuse to allow Hezbollah to get involved in the Israel fight, and so that is why you see kind of a tepid uh, reaction no. um, by the U.S. military to these constant barrage of attacks on U.S. forces. So,
4: Jennifer, just to be clear, you're saying since we hit them on Sunday, they've hit our our, uh, our troops back.
2: They have tried to fire back. They've fired rockets four separate occasions since that airstrike was carried out last night. That is, again, no U.S. injuries, no damage to the bases, but they clearly are angry at what they lost yesterday.
4: So why do you think it is they were hitting the Syrian border and not hitting locations in Iraq where some of this fire came from?
2: Well, from what my sources have told me is that it's very sensitive to hit inside of Iraq because you could be destabilizing the Iraqi government. Right now, the Iraqi government is very tenuous. If that government gets overthrown, you could see greater Iranian influence in the Iraqi government and the U.S. would lose any sort of influence that it has in Iraq. So that is why you're seeing, even though the Iranian proxy forces are firing on al-Assad in Iraq where U.S. troops are based, even though those the troops in Iraq are coming under fire, the response from the U.S. military is coming in Syria because, again, it's very delicate in terms of the Iraqi government and the U.S. not wanting to uh, destabilize a a what is it, basically a friendly government at this point.
4: So, uh, a lot of moving parts. There's nothing simple. I get it, but I uh, you know Dan Hoffman who knows more than I'll ever know about the region. Said and used to be a station in Iraq. He says that the Iranians like having that presence there. I could see how the Russians and Chinese would, but I wouldn't think there were, there's any advantage to us having this, these aircraft carrier groups in the region.
2: I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. That Dan Hoffman uh, says that
4: Iran likes the distraction that we're in this region uh, with such great uh, force, and I can't see for the life of me why. He would think that because it seems to work against Iran's best interest to have our power on think, display.
2: Yeah, I think what he might be arguing, and I, and I didn't hear what he said, but I think what he might be saying is that. Iran is having huge domestic problems, as we know. They've had protests by the young women who wanted to take off their hijab. They've had to crush those protests. They're, the regime is very unpopular. The uh, inflation rate is incredibly high in Iran. They're they're having a shortage of a cash shortage, and so they are they're trying to distract from their domestic problems by focusing outwards. And so to have the sort of what they call the great Satan on their doorstep with a big aircraft carrier in the Strait of Hormuz, that gives the the mullahs and and the leaders of Tehran an opportunity to say, see, we have to do this. We have to support uh, Hamas and Hezbollah and these Iranian proxies and the IRGC is doing all this great uh, fighting over in Syria and Iraq. Uh, it's a way to distract from all their domestic problems. So it's possible that mm-hmm. what Dan is saying is that that the aircraft carrier is such a large symbol of American power and prowess. But I think the message that CENTCOM wants to send to Tehran is – hey if you're uh, If you kill Americans in these strikes on any of our bases, if you actually kill an American and if you fire missiles, remember the Iranian government has some long range missiles. the ballistic missile program was one of the biggest problems um, of that Iran nuclear deal because it was not touched, and they have ballistic missiles that could hit israel, it could hit u uh, s bases that are very vulnerable all across the middle east and if they use those there's just a reminder hey we have an aircraft carrier group we've got uh planes, uh we have a capability that you that it is unmatched and just don't don't try it
4: yeah I guess, so. no, I guess so when you when you see uh who's has the most influence with netanyahu is he constantly on with state secretary of state is it with president biden is it with austin uh and the pressure that he's receiving to pull back and so-called pause or ceasefire where's that most of that pressure coming from
2: I think his relationship probably is straight president to um, prime minister, so he's he's talking to the White House. It's uh, there, there certainly the defense chiefs, uh, defense secretary Austin was on the phone with defense minister Gallant. Certainly, in terms of weaponry going to uh, support the defensive um, missile defense systems that the U.S. has been sending over to Israel to protect Tel Aviv and other cities, that is coming through the Pentagon. So there, there are. Relationships, uh, but I think uh, Bibi Netanyahu is talking directly to the president and to probably Jake Sullivan. And I would say that when you talk about pressure, I mean there hasn't been a great deal of pressure because you can you can see that that the Israelis are moving forward in Gaza and um, and they they are not uh, they're not instituting any sort of ceasefire. Um, But the White House also isn't putting pressure for a ceasefire. What they want are sort of four-hour windows so that humanitarian aid can get in. Uh, But the questions that they're asking are fair questions. The questions that the White House is asking and that the U.S. military, who has some advisors on the ground in Israel, is asking is, what comes next? Okay, You can go in there and you can clear out northern Gaza. You've moved 1.7 million Palestinians now to southern Gaza. Uh, most of their residences are damaged in some way. Are they going to be able to return back to northern Gaza? What comes the day after? And we've heard kind of some doublespeak from Bibi Netanyahu. On the one hand, he told Brett Baer that, that Israel does not want to occupy G- Gaza when this is over. And on the other hand, the next day he went down and met with the southern communities in, in southern Israel and told them that the, the Israel would provide security mm. in Gaza, uh, you know, for the, for the near future in Gaza um, and after the Gaza raid because uh, they don't trust anybody else to do so. So it's really the day after is going to be, whenever that comes, whether it's a year from now uh, or a few months from now, uh, how – they're going to manage gaza how you're going to have a, a a government there because hamas is pretty woven into that 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 society i mean it's a movement it's not a, a small terror cell that can be eradicated and so I just don't know who's going to lead you know you have 2.3 million people there what are you going to do with them and Egypt is not going to take them they don't want to leave and Israel is going to have have um a, a very huge security issue even after even if they can um can get to the Hamas leaders and kill them I mean Brian you remember I was in Israel based there for 7 years yep. every time I interviewed a Hamas leader and I did so you know, almost weekly, uh, they they were killed very shortly after that. The, the Israelis were targeting and killing Hamas military leaders, bomb makers, as well as their political leadership. Um, while we were there, and a lot of the names that that we see now, the names for hospitals there are, are people that when we were there were assassinated by Israel. There's always someone to take their place, and so it is a real. It's really difficult to understand what's going to happen the day after.
4: I know, I don't know, (laughs) and I think they're openly. (laughs) Don't think anyone does. Yeah, I I know, I know. When I hear them openly saying, Herzog and company saying, "We'll know it when we get there," but we first got to get them out of there. So uh, it's going to be a big standoff to see if the tunnels are under that hospital, like they said they are. So yeah, it's going to be it'll
2: be interesting. And also, let's not forget the very key role that Qatar is playing in this. And I think a lot of Americans don't know the history of how Qatar was asked by not only the Bush administration, but also by Israel and by Bibi Netanyahu as prime minister to set up an office for Hamas in Qatar. So that was always part of the U.S and Israel saying hey we need somebody who can at least mediate between Hamas you know this is prior to this current outrageous you know attack by the by Hamas the incredible terror attack on October 7th which nobody will ever be, which has really changed the face of everything but prior to that Multiple U.S. administrations had asked Qatar to be play a mediating role with Hamas. They've done so. The best way to get the hostages out will be through uh, mediation with Qatar because those hostages, if you go into the tunnels, I mean, you're pretty much um, assuring that those hostages will be killed. So. It's a really delicate moment, oh and goodness, yeah. Israel believes that by keeping the pressure on that the, that will help the negotiators but again um, this is this is a very dangerous time frame
4: I did not know that Israel and the u s were behind Hamas yeah. opening up a Office in Qatar, so thank you for that. Yeah,
2: it's a very interesting history, and and I've seen the letters from um, from various um, state departments, and you know, going all the way back to Condi Mm -hmm. Rice, and um, and then of course, Bibi Netanyahu had always asked the Qataris to provide the money to Hamas in Gaza after Hamas won the election, so that the hospitals and that the you know that the government could keep functioning, because you know the problem is Israel knew that that you've got two point three million people there and and they need water and they need electricity. So it's Cutter is going to be the best bet to get those hostages out.
4: Jennifer, thanks so much. Busy time. I don't know how you're juggling it all. (laughs) Jennifer Griffin, (laughs) that's security correspondent. uh, And she's the she's the one in charge. Jennifer, thanks. (laughs) Thanks, All right. You got it. Back in a moment.
3: Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
4: Hey, welcome back, everyone. Just wrapping everything up. I uh, Hope to see everybody in Connecticut, Madison, Connecticut, tomorrow. Uh, sign in, uh, signing signing, uh, Teddy and Booker T, two American icons, Place a path to racial equality. I just love talking about our past, especially our recent past. Let's go to Cliff in Waterbury, Connecticut. Cliff.
9: Hey, Brian, thanks for taking my call. You're coming to the Connecticut. I'm, I'm sorry coming. I will be able to
6: see you. Wow, but listen, I feel real bad, real disappointed. Uh, Tim Scott dropped out. You know what I mean? You know, I thought he was a good guy. I thought you people liked him. What happened? He even picked I, up a white girlfriend. I, I think
4: he's, I think he's coming back, Cliff. I think he'll, he'll be in it. I wouldn't doubt that, that he's going to be a, a finalist to be vice president. Notice hey, Donald Trump. No, notice control. that. Notice that Donald Trump never went after him. Always said, "Surprise, Timmy got in. Great guy. Always got, got centered, and he never went after Trump." So, I think that, that leaves that door wide open. Brian, kill me, Joe.
1: Listen to the all new Brett Bear podcast, featuring Common Ground, in depth
3: talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites, like his All Star panel, and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.